So to pass out a freaking credit, you had to have $1 of income for the freaking credit to attach to it. $1 of dividend income for the freaking credit to attach to it. So if I have a $70 dividend with $30 freaking credit, and I have $70 worth of losses, then once I take away the $70 worth of income losses, I have no income, so I can't pass the freaking credit out to anyone. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 401 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Let's start a new mini-series about trust losses. How do you treat trust losses? when these losses include ordinary and or capital losses, but also ordinary income and or capital gains. And what do you do when these losses do or don't offset the gains or income? This is the question which came from a listener and Ron Jorgensen of Thomson Gear in Melbourne will walk you through the answers. In this episode, we go way back to the very start and look at trust income because we need to understand trust income before we can understand trust losses. So we will focus on the distinction between trust and net income and the proportionate versus the quantum approach. Then in the next episode, episode 402, we look at a number of court cases, especially Upton versus Brown, and clarify which trust losses you can or have to offset when. And then in episode 403, we will go through six different scenarios that involve trust losses. So here's Ron Jorgensen of Thomson Gear with four questions about trust income. Number one, TR2012-D1. TR2012-D1, I thought surely that has been issued since then. So I googled around and I couldn't find it finalized. So is it still in draft form? Yes, so intentionally it has remained in draft form because I guess during consultation there was a great deal of resistance to a number of the aspects within the ruling about how distributable income is determined. So it represents the ATO's view on how they want to administer it. The resistance to it being issued in final form probably has a reflexing penalties. So if it's in final form, then the commissioner is obliged to effectively impose penalties on non-compliance with the ruling because he's put out final position. So while it remains in draft, most people would choose to comply with it to avoid interactions with the ATO. But if you don't comply with it, then it doesn't have the same penalty reflexes. So TR2012-D1 basically outlines the ATO's position but neither the ATO nor the taxpayer is bound by it. It's more just explaining what the ATO is thinking. Yeah, so the commissioner will not assess against the draft. So always the commissioner will always assess consistent with the draft, so we'll follow that through. But it really just comes back to they won't impose a 25% or greater penalty yes. for ignoring it. The commissioner can't even refer to it, correct? No, the commissioner does. Yeah, so the commissioner treats it as if it's virtually a final from their point of view, but because it hasn't been finalised, the taxpayer is not bound in the same way for penalties and interest. So you do have a choice of whether you 
comply with TR12D1 when you're answering your item 56 and 57. And on some occasions with appropriate warnings to the client, for instance, with your loss lockups that we're talking about, you might well ignore it. Number two, item 56 and 57. I haven't done my homework. Item 56 and 57, is that a paragraph in the uh, TR or is that a line in the uh, tax return? It's in the trust tax return. They're really just we go through income deductions and those sorts of things. Those items identify where on the tax return they appear. So do you mind if I just very quickly go through the structure of a trust tax return? I know you know it by heart, but just so that you have it visually present in your head. So you have the cover, then you have income, which are item 5 to 15, then you have deductions, then you have other, which is capital gains and foreign income, then you have business income, and then at the very bottom of all this, you have item 56, which is the income of the trust estate. So this item 56, that is the net income of the trust. That is the accessible net income of the trust. And then in item 57, you have income to which no beneficiary is presently entitled. So if you have a difference between trust income and net income, that difference will show up at item 57. So these two lines, these two items are basically what we are talking about here. But back to one. Number three, difference between trust income and net income. Would you be able to just quickly explain the difference between trust income and net income? I guess trust income is purely trust concept. And what it was designed for is under the terms of a trustee, it determines whether which beneficiaries receive the distribution. So, for instance, if you had in a traditional estate where income was held for mum and upon mum's death, all the capital goes to the children, you have mum as the income beneficiary during the life of the process and on her death, her children would get all the assets of the trust. So that's, I guess, the, the very old genesis of the idea. And when the trustee received an amount, the trustee would have to identify whether it was income and mum could take it, or it was capital and the trust had to hold onto it and then distribute to the beneficiaries on mum's death. Something along the lines of a bonus share, for instance, created some interesting issues. If the trustee had received a dividend, it would have been going to mum. But because the trustee received a bonus share in lieu of a dividend, the trustee had to hold it for the children. Now, that concept still exists within our modern trust deeds. We have income beneficiaries during each accounting period. And then on the vesting of the trust, it goes to specified beneficiaries. So, for instance, the children in that case or relatives or along those lines. So, it still exists within our trust deeds, but it's, the classes are a lot broader. So when the trustee receives an amount such as that bonus share, he's got to decide whether it's income for trust purposes and can hand it out during the financial year or the income year or has to hold on to until the trust vests. There's always some extra provisions in the deed that allow the trustee to, to call upon capital and pay it out early. That's least in modern deeds. But that concept still exists. So all the trust's income does is allowing the trustee to identify which beneficiaries of different classes can get the, the money. So that's got a very clear 
ordinary income concept and capital concept. Income annually, capital held for vesting unless called upon early. So this issue we still have in modern trust deeds. So the trustee needs to decide whether a certain benefit is income or capital. Correct. So most deeds will either do that. I guess we have three forms of deeds still around. Prior to 1985, most deeds didn't refer to income at all. So that meant you were just dealing with ordinary income, which is essentially the trust income. Um, when from um, 85 onwards when capital gains came in, they realised the statutory income wasn't being covered properly and there was a big disparity between what trust income was and what tax income was, the net income under Section 95, because capital gains was filing through all yeah. So that's when we started the fashion of designing deeds where we would, the trustee would say the income of the trust estate is Section 95 income to try and equate them, but they didn't equate perfectly because of CGT discounts and things like that. And then, I guess in, in the 2000s to mid-2000s, we started trying to deal with the disparity that was causing by saying income equals 95 income, dealing with losses and all sorts of things like that. So we started drafting deeds that allowed the trustees to determine what was income, what wasn't income, that sort of thing, to give a lot more flexibility. And it was really that style of drafting to say the beneficiaries that the trustees can determine what the income is for the trust, what the trust income is, to decide whether it goes to the income beneficiaries or the capital beneficiaries under the trust deed that we end up with 2012 D1 where the commissioners tried to put some brakes on that because we were getting very creative in avoiding some of these problems you've identified in the lots. The Section 95 covers ordinary income and statutory income. Yes. Yeah, so right? if you think about a can yes, if, so if you think about a capital gain, a capital gain, a discounted capital gain has a statutory income component and then it has the non-accessible component to it. So when you look at a discounted capital gain, it has, I guess, two parts being what is income and what is net income and what is not net income, which is otherwise capital. And that creates some interesting problems about how you distribute. That distinction comes up when we have a 50% CGT discount or a small business CGT concession, correct? So yeah. let's say our capital gain is 100,000 and then we apply 50% CGT discount. So then the statutory income would only be 50,000 and then the non-accessible income would be another 50,000. And when you say non-accessible, you mean non-accessible or do you mean non-exempt non-accessible? So is that nana or is that just non-accessible? It's just non-accessible component. So from that point of view, you end up with this interesting issue where you have a deed that says income equals 95 income. The trust income is the same as net income. So that $50,000 in accessible component is trust income. It has to go out to the, the income beneficiary. But the $50,000, which is not accessible, is capital. And technically, it should be held for the capital beneficiaries on vesting. So that creates a real problem of how do you distribute it to make sure you've got both parts of the capital gain streaming out of the trust so that it can be properly streamed and you can get the full discount on it. So you get your specific entitlement that they referred to in the, the amendments. 
So if you look at the three stages you, you mentioned, before 85, the trust deed usually just referred to trust income. And that means only ordinary income was included. That became an issue after 85 when we had capital gain, which is the statutory income. Then trust deed spoke of section 95 income, which includes ordinary income and statutory income. But then the issue is that we don't have non-accessible components of a capital gain, for example, excluded or included. And that's why we now in the early 2000s started giving the trustee the power to define trust income, because then the trustee can decide whether, for example, the non-accessible part of capital gain is income or capital, correct? Correct. So depending on which deeds you have, you actually have different sorts of resolutions to pass them out. Under a lot of deeds, sort of clause four is the one that says income can be passed out each year. And then clause five says at vesting, capital is passed out to the, for instance, the next of kin or whoever the final beneficiaries are, or can be paid out early. So where you have a discounted crop of the plane, under the older deeds that don't have a definition of income, you pass out, none of the capital gain can pass out as income because there's no equalization with the tax concepts. So you have to pass it out under clause five, which is the capital distribution or holder for the final beneficiaries, and that could cause you some problems. We have income equals 95 income, so that period after capital gains tax, you would pass out the assessable component being statutory income and deemed under section 95 to be trust law income under clause four, which is the income beneficiary clause. And then the non-assessable part sits there as capital. And unless you can pass that out under the capital clause in clause five, you can't get it out of the trust. So when you do your resolutions, you would say the assessable component comes out under clause four to the income beneficiaries. And then you would say the non-assessable part under clause five has to go out to the same beneficiaries if you can manage that. Otherwise, you get a mismatch and cause yourself CGT discount problems. Um, yeah, then in the final version where the trustee can determine a receipt to be anything they like, that creates a great deal of flexibility. Because what you could do is say, I've received this capital gain, the discounted capital gain. The discounted, the, the assessable component is income, but I will determine that the non-assessable component is also trust income. And therefore, I pass it all out under the income clause, clause four. So in part of it, those deeds are really just in one ones are defining the mechanism on how you affect things and you can get everything to match. In older deeds and testamentary trust wills and things like that, you can find that you can't actually pass it out in that flexible way because of the way the old wills are drafted and you can get all sorts of, I guess, conflicts about on whether you can actually do the distributions you want to do. If we have a deed where the uh, trustee has the power to define income, we should not have any issues with respect to the distinction between trust income versus net income and also the distinction between income and capital, correct? With some exceptions in TR 2012D1, and that's what the commission is sort of arguing. So the industry, practitioners would tend to say as long as the trustee can determine what's income and what's income for trust law purposes, trust income, then you can manage most of these problems under most trustees. 
But the commissioner has said, well, there's certain types of income that I don't think you can exercise the trustee's power on. So if you think about frank dividends, that's a really good example that the commissioner relies upon. So if I've got a frank dividend of $70 and a $30 imputation credit, the question is, what is trust income when I pass it out? Because the $70 is income under ordinary concepts, so it could be passed out. But the $30 is a tax attribute. It's the gross-up figure for the company's imputation credits. And the commissioner says you can't make a resolution to pass that out. So you end up with a slightly unusual thing because if you say income equals 95 income in a deed, because the imputation credit is statutory income, you have $100 to actually pass out to the beneficiaries. But the commissioner says, no, it doesn't work that way because it's what he calls notional income. It's a tax attribute. The only trust income you really have is still the $70 and the tax attribute for the the imputation credit attaches to and follows the $70 wherever you put that. So if you have an income equals 95 income, you have a problem that technically there is $100 to be distributed, but there's only $70 in cash at bank that could possibly be given to a beneficiary. So trustees were going to be worried about the beneficiaries on whether they could call upon the extra $30 because of the way the resolutions were, were crafted. So you've still got that issue sitting there that the commissioner says, even if you have Section 95 income, we say you can't deal, the commission says you can't deal with it in the, in the same way as other classes of income. So therefore, you have to have a workaround for that as well. That is only an issue if you have a trustee that still refers to Section 95 income, correct? Well, yes, because it has the gross up. In both other circumstances, you would only make a resolution for the $70 and ignore the $30 that exist. I see. And so TR 2012-D1 says... You need to make a resolution for the $100, not just for the $70. A TR 2012-D1 says you can only ever make a resolution for the $70. Oh, Even okay. if your trust deed says income equals 95, factually you can't do a resolution for a tax attribute because it doesn't exist. It's not cash at bank. It doesn't have a physical form. It's really just allows the commission that gives you a tax return under the legislation. So the example I would give you would be um, freaking credit lockup. So to pass out a freaking credit, you have to have $1 of income for the freaking credit to attach to it. $1 of dividend income for the freaking credit to attach to it. So if I have a $70 dividend with $30 freaking credit and I have $70 worth of losses, then once I take away the $70 worth of income losses, I have no income, so I can't pass the franking credit out to anyone. As soon as your trust income is nil, you lose the franking credits. So what people were arguing is to say, well, if I say income equals 95, I've technically got $100 of an income. When I deduct the $70 worth of income, I still end up with $30 worth of income, and I can pass out the franking credit. And that's what the commission is trying to stop. What we were doing is, in essence, allocating some of the loss to the franking credit we were going to get. So we had some real money left in the calculation to be able to pass out. And that's what the commissioner was trying to close down. The commissioner says only $70 is trust income and net income. With this $70, you have a loss, then you lose the franking credits. Correct. Number four. 
proportionate approach versus quantum approach. Could you just quickly explain this discussion around proportionate and quantum approach? If I get 10% of the trust law income as a beneficiary, then I get 10% of the Section 95 net income. If you get 10% of trust income. Yes. Now, where trust income equals net income, there's really no disparity there. But under the older deeds, where trust income was different to net income, then you could have a problem. So I could get 10% of the trust income, but because the net income included capital gains and all sorts of things like that, you used to then get taxed on amounts you couldn't receive. So just say I had $100 worth of trust income and there was another, there was $1,000 of non-discounted capital gain, so it was all net income, then if I got 10% of the trust income, so I could only get $10 out of the 100, I would also get taxed on 10% of the accessible capital gain, even though I could never ask the trustee for it because of the way the Section 97 worked. And that's what we were often trying to manage is that arrangement. Now, under the quantum approach, the concept was that if I got 10% of the income, that's all I was entitled to. And all the rest of the income I couldn't get taxed on. It was either taxed to someone else or it was taxed to the trustee because no one had been made presently entitled, entitled to it. So the quantum approach meant that I only got taxed on the amounts I could receive and could call for from the trust. So in our example, the $10 out of the $100 of ordinary income, and the trustee would probably be taxed on the, the capital gain. So when we get to Bamford, those two approaches were being interchangeably used by um, trustees to manage where the liability fell for unexpected income and things like that. And what Banford said is, no, the quantum approach doesn't apply. You only have a proportionate approach. So it took away the ability for us to, to manage that up, potential uplift under some deeds. Uh, now, in most modern deeds where you can say income equals whatever you like it to be, as the trustee can say whatever he likes to be, you can manage that so you can get all the proportions to work correctly. Because some of the deeds couldn't be updated, so the deeds that couldn't be updated to have that flexibility, you end up with a problem like the old deeds before 1985 as they couldn't be amended. You always had this disparity. So what the commissioner then said was, well, because it's unfair for, or government said, because it's unfair for those under the new Bamford rules, we will amend the legislation. And that's where we get to the point where we take capital gains out of the, the calculation of Section 95 income and just flows under Division 115 separately. So that whole approach of removing it was to try and make sure that Deeds that had no definition of income, deeds that had income equals 95 income, or deeds where the trustee could determine amounts, they would all work with these discounted and other capital gains under the proportional approach. So the um, proportionate approach applies. However, whatever gets streamed is still under the quantum approach because it means whatever you decide to stream, that is that amount. There is no proportion. No, no, the proportion approach always applies. The quantum no longer exists as an option. So you have to use the terms of the deed 
to make sure that your proportions of trust income and net income match. So the amounts of your trust income and the amounts of Section 95 income match. Otherwise, your proportions are unaligned. I read somewhere that the quantum approach still applies to streaming and when the trust income is nil, but that it probably is a question of definition. Well, to the extent that capital gains now flow through Division 115 and don't flow through Section 97, it gets taxed as a separate bucket of, of income. So when a trust receives $100 worth of, say, rental income and $1,000 worth of capital gain, they only ever have $100 of rental income because the capital gain now is no longer included in Section 95 income. It goes and travels through Section 115. Division 115 would still be the quantum approach, correct? Well, the quantum approach was designed, it's trying to give an equivalent to the quantum approach. The quantum approach as a concept no longer exists because we now have a statutory sort of siloing effect that you've called it. It's probably a matter of definition, but it's a bit confusing to talk about the quantum approach because Bamford said that does not exist anymore. That's why we had to start with legislation and legislation says 115 we take the money out of Section 90, the capital gains out of 95, and we just stream it all under 115. So that we don't affect the proportion approach at all. It, it, it comes up with the equivalent of a quantum approach, I guess, but it's not really a quantum approach. It's a statutory streaming rather than a quantum. Yes. yes. So yes. I'm playing that words a little bit. Let me use an example just to make it clear. Let Before we go through this example, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Last year, our accounting firm was hacked. Okay, I'm going to admit it. My password was password. I thought about going back to old school paperwork, but then I heard about DocuSign. It has the highest global security standards with round-the-clock activity tracking, keeping digital agreements confidential. So now we're on DocuSign and no one's cracking my password. And no, it's not one, two, three, four. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Let me use an example just to make it clear. Let's say a trust has $10,000 of ordinary income and has $10,000 of capital gains. And then for some fluke reason, there's also $10,000 of some other income that is not trust income, but is net income. So it has to be taxed. To allocate this $10,000 of net income that is not matched by trust income, would you only use the proportions of how the ordinary income was distributed or would, would you also use the proportions of how, you know, would you basically use the proportions of trust income as a whole, including ordinary income and capital gain? Or would you only use ordinary income? So let's say, sorry to make this clearer, let's say the ordinary income went to Peter and the capital gain went to Paul. So this 10,000 that hasn't been allocated to anybody, would that go to Peter, to Paul, or 50-50 using the proportionate approach? That depends the term of your deed. I guess is the, is the, the, the simple answer to that, but it makes it very confusing. So the $10,000 worth of capital gain, that gets taken out under Division 115, so it just gets passed out separately. So you just ignore that for the purposes of identifying your proportions. 
So then what you have is you have $10,000 worth of ordinary income. That went to Peter. That went to Peter. And you've got $10,000 sitting there of this other class of income you've spoken about that no one's made a resolution about. So under the proportionate approach, we have $10,000 of trust law income. Now we've got $20,000 of, of net income left over. If I get 10% of the trust law income, 10% of the $10,000 of ordinary income, I also have to include 10% of the other income that we spoke about. Okay, so that means Peter will have to, because Peter got the entire $10,000 ordinary income, that means Peter will get the entire $10,000 income that hasn't been, you know, that hasn't been covered by trust income. So Peter will have $20,000 in his income tax return, correct? Yes, but he can only call upon the $10,000 he was given from the trustee. Yep. The other $10,000 sits, sits in the trust and he can never get his hands on it. So that's why it's unfair because he's being taxed on $20,000, but he can only get $10,000 out of the trust Emma. And that extra $10,000 that he's been taxed on sits in the trust and has to be given, for instance, on vesting day to someone or specifically given out to Peter as another distribution of capital or to um, make him whole so he hasn't been taxed on amounts that he can't receive. Okay, good. But so that means the proportionate approach only applies to section, I know you already said that, but it took a, a while for my penny to drop. The proportionate approach only applies to section 95 income. It doesn't apply to income that was streamed under division 115. So if this capital gain hadn't been streamed, but had just been distributed under Section 95, uh, had been distributed in equal parts under Section 95, then it would go into the proportionate calculation. But because the $10,000 of capital gain had been streamed and hence had been put into the Division 115 bucket, it's no longer in the uh, calculation of the proportionate approach, correct? Well, yes. Yeah. So before 115 was enacted, that capital gain would have had the same problems because we would have had $10,000 worth of trust or income, $10,000 worth of capital gains, and $10,000 of the other income you spoke about. So where Peter got 10% of the ordinary income, he would be taxed on 10% of both the other class of income we spoke about and 10% of the capital gain, even though he was never going to get the capital gain. So that was what was causing the problem. So once you take the capital gain out, and you, you don't have a choice anymore about whether it comes out, 115 says it just never goes into it, you've got to stream it separately. You remove that potential problem with which was what was happening with capital gains was the same as happening to the example you gave of the $10,000 or other assessable income. Ron Jorgensen of Thompson Gear in Melbourne. So capital gains are assessed under Division 115C, ITAA 97, and franking credits under Division 207B, ITAA 1997. Whether you stream or don't stream, it doesn't matter. They are always assessed under Division 115C and Division 207B. So capital gains and franking credits both are taken out of Division 6 and put into a separate bucket. So... That was the first part to prepare for our talk about trust losses next week. 
If you want to hear more from Ron, he will speak about dystopian trust distributions at the Tech Summit in Melbourne on the 7th of September. Of course, you know that the Tech Summit goes from the 5th to the 7th of September, but Ron speaks on the 7th. In the next episode, we will look at court cases around trust losses, especially the Upton versus Brown case from way back in 1884, the Rustland Propriety Limited case from 2008, and the Kachuk case. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.